0: At progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you get around to finally deciding to settle down, start a family, maybe raise a couple of kids or whatever the things that you could live with in the before time like the drug dealing roommate the rat's nest under the sink those things you let slide in your past you're not gonna let slide anymore the name of the game is safety stability family right you put a cease and desist order on the nonsense charlie There should be no more of your crazy card games in the back room. I'm turning it into a nursery. Because we know what that next phase of life is supposed to look like. 401ks, mortgages, gutter cleaning services, parent-teacher conferences. We know this. We know this. It's a well-paved road, Snappers. You'll feel its gravity, even if you're not on it. Pulling, calling. But what if you were reminded before dipping your toe into that pool that there is, in fact, another path where danger, conflict, hunger, fear are not things to be avoided? No, they are to be embraced. Get ready for a very hard left turn because today, Snap Judgment proudly presents the Badlands. One story, one extended family, and one of the hardest decisions anyone has ever had to make. My name is Glenn Washington, and yes, we're very proud of this one, Snappers, because sometimes the thing that doesn't make any sense is the only thing that makes any sense when you're listening to Snap Judgment. We begin today's show in search of evil. Our story takes place about a year ago in Mosul, Iraq, when ISIS surrounds the city. And amid the horror that ensues, something remarkable happens as well. A group of civilians from around the world, they pack up their bags and fly into Iraq. They make their way overland into Mosul, and they start trying their hand at fighting ISIS Note, I can't wait for you to hear this piece, but it is a wartime story. So listener discretion is advised. Snap judgment.
1: This specific place we were in a house that had a couch and the houses are houses that used to be occupied by people you know the windows are blown out then it looks like they're usually looted because there's clothes everywhere. And so when we go in, we often clean up a room and I find myself putting away things that really belong to people. I'm, clean, I'm folding dresses and clothes and then you end up folding little kids' clothes and putting away shoes. And that's probably one of the hardest things I do is feeling like this was really a life. What were they doing? Where'd they come from? And where did they go? It was
2: the height of ISIS's battle for Mosul and Karen Newbank a middle-aged mother of three, moved herself and her family into an abandoned house in the middle
1: of the city. Well, every day when Dave and the team go off, we never know if he's gonna come back. You look in the distance and you see these huge plumes of smoke because they're suicide bombs going or cars going off. I'm sitting and doing homeschool with my kids, high school, subjects, algebra, my son, sixth grade. Uh, but at the same time, I have my phone. We have cell service in Iraq with a local provider that works generally well. And and sometimes they'll send us a text to say, please get ready to come to the CCP, which is a casualty collection point where there's 100 people coming across. Karen's husband, Dave, is not with the UN or the Peace Corps or
2: the U.S. Armed Forces or the Iraqi Armed Forces. He's kind of with his own armed forces and his own relief organization. He's a former Air Force Ranger, who started running his own humanitarian relief missions about 20 years ago in Burma. But unlike other humanitarian relief organizations, Dave's missions are armed. So he, and whoever else wants to join him, go into crisis centers kind of like relief commandos, bringing food and water and medical supplies and shooting down the enemy. His group is called the Free Burma Rangers, and they are a fascinating organization, and I just wanted to see what a day in the life of this group was like.
3: I'm Dave Eubank of the Free Burma Rangers. We have three rules. You have to do this for love. You can't run if people can't run and you might not get paid. I have a wife, Karen, beautiful in all ways, and three kids who grew up on all the missions in Burma and then later into Kurdistan and Syria and Sudan and Iraq. We've got 70 relief teams
2: The relief teams go into these war zones with weapons and first aid and Christian songs. They've been described as doctors without borders with guns. But they pretty much spend their days doing humanitarian work. They started their work in Burma, where they'd walk to villages deep in the jungle, carrying their little kids on their backs, along with backpacks full of medical supplies. And in the last 20 years, they've been asked by various groups fighting oppression in pretty lawless places to help. So Syria, and the Sudan, Kurdistan, and last year Mosul, Iraq, when ISIS was surrounding the city. And why do you want to fight ISIS?
3: Well, our main job is not to fight ISIS. Our main job is to help people who are being attacked by ISIS. And but I want to stand against ISIS, and sometimes that w- might require fighting ISIS. In our case, it did a couple times because they came to us to, to kill us and kill our friends.
2: In Mosul, they worked alongside the Iraqi army.
3: Most of it, we were feeding people who fled. 37,000 people we gave food and water to. And that's
4: my wife, my kids. Um, every day, Suzanne, um, my sister, we all, we'd come with our school books, Suzanne and I would, to the CCP, help in any way we can as we did our school. And then sometimes I would be called to the front line with where my dad was to drive ambulances back and forth.
2: This is Dave and Karen's oldest daughter, Sahali. She's 17 and she drives an armored ambulance around Mosul. Uh, I occasionally see a tank come past and drive down. We do go into frontline areas a lot. So we've done this a lot.
4: My sister, a girl
2: named... Wherever the Eubank family goes, there's a parade of missionaries and mercenaries and kind of misfits who sign up to work with them.
3: It's not a religious organization. You can believe in anything or nothing.
2: In Mosul, they were joined by uh, Muslim refugees from Syria, a French woman, a few Burmese ethnic minority fighters, some Mennonite women in long dresses and lace bonnets, a husband and wife from Georgia, and they were all eating and sleeping and handing out rations together. They had one volunteer who was a Syrian refugee named Mahmoud, who they had met selling ice cream in a mall in Erbil, and he left his ice cream cart to follow them to the front lines. It's a very kind of motley menagerie of folks, but they usually have a few things in common. A calling to help others, a taste for adventure, and maybe a little bit of a hero complex.
5: I'm, I'm human. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a man. I want, you know, every man wants to be a hero. Every man wants to go out there and save someone's life.
2: This is Ephraim Matos. He's a former Navy SEAL from Milwaukee, and he's the new guy with the team in Mosul. He left the Navy SEALs because the SEALs are so elite and so well-maintained that they spend a huge amount of time training. And Ephraim's the kind of guy who really wants to just be in the field doing stuff.
3: He emailed and said, I'm just out of the Navy and I'm interested in your organization. Can I come volunteer?
5: I said, yeah, why don't you come check us out? I talked with Dave and he was like, hey man, come on out in, in, in a few weeks, fly into Iraq and we'll, you know, we'll meet you there sort of thing.
2: So Ephraim packed his journal and some T-shirts into a backpack. And we can you just kind of describe? We on like a commercial flight, or are you on the? How does that work?
5: Yeah, so I got a I got a commercial flight, and I flew into Erbil, Iraq.
2: Did it feel different than when maybe when you were flying in as part of a SEAL team? When you're flying in as like under the rubric of like this much larger organization. Like you were just kind of on your own on that flight at least.
5: Absolutely. It was it was definitely a different sensation flying into Iraq on a civilian plane surrounded by civilians, sort of having to find my own way. Didn't have any weapons. You know, I just landed with my backpack and went out and I got um uh bullets, uh grenades, all my medical equipment. I had to go I had to go buy that. I didn't have that.
2: Where are you, where are you buying then?
5: um there's actually uh, large open air markets right there in Erbil that sell all kinds of tactical equipment so you just walk down the street
2: Was that surreal like walking through a market buying your own ammo?
5: It was certainly a little a little uh, strange but it was but that's just the reality over there it's war it's it's war over there everyone's buying tactical gear I also bu- I also bought a little uh, pirate telescope thing which was ended up proving extremely valuable later the way I see it is, um, and the way we we talked about it as a team was, ISIS is our generation's Nazis, and it was an honor to have a part in over overthrowing them, and it's in a small, small way. And I wanted to save lives, and that's that's what I wanted to do. That's what I was hoping out of it. The idea of you know necessarily fighting or fighting ISIS and all that stuff and getting into gunfights as as a as a former Special operations guy, sure, that's intriguing and that's, that's you know, you, you kind of want that. But at the end of the day, like, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for the opportunity to truly make an impact and help somebody. That's what I really wanted. We loaded up the vehicles. At the time, we had three land cruisers. And then we drove off into the desert toward Mosul. Um, and so we're on these bombed-out roads... We cross out of Kurdistan to Iraqi territory, and we started seeing, our I started seeing for the first time, the, the mayhem and the destruction. It was, it was very surreal, and then we go through these little towns, just completely just shot up. The, the buildings are destroyed. There's bullet holes everywhere, deserted except for a few you know, military checkpoints coming through, and then you're back across the, the plains of, of Nineveh. And it's, it, was, it was actually beautiful. The, the shepherds and the, and the green rolling hills, it was, it was actually incredibly beautiful. For the first few weeks that I was out there, we handed out food and different medical supplies and whatnot to the local people. It, it did get a little bit mundane, for sure. But I, I was I was happy. And one of the things I dealt with when I was in the military, I actually dealt with depression a lot. And when I got to Iraq, I was just... I just was completely happy. Life made sense. I was helping people.
2: They were doing this work and going to bed every night in the middle of an active war zone. So sometimes the bombs and the planes were more of a background soundtrack. But in June of last year, Mosul began to erupt.
5: June 1st. And we woke up that morning. There was Something was wrong. I, I could feel that something was wrong. I didn't know what it was. I thought I was maybe sick. Um, I wasn't sure. The energy was off in the city. And I know it sounds strange to say, but that's what I felt. We didn't fully understand what had happened until later that night. We had treated people all day and then we were about to go to bed, um, in the bombed out house that we were staying in. So we laid down and we all laid, there was, I believe it was eight of us that day. Um, and we all laid down head-to-head, shoulder-to-shoulder, just crammed in there. Um, mosquitoes were completely eating us alive in the darkness. It was extremely hot. We're um, exhausted. We're wearing our gear. And every hour or so, one of the Iraqi soldiers would come in, and he would wake me up. And they'd say, um, Talbib, talib or Talbaba, like doctor in medical care in Arabic. And I would I I would, uh, I'd reach over, and I'd wake everybody up and say, Hey, we got more we have more patients outside. So everybody, without saying a word, without complaining, would just get up completely exhausted, waking up from, you know, the hour of sleep that they just had. It's two o'clock in the morning, just completely miserable. And we'd throw our gear on and we'd walk out into the darkness. When we walk out into the darkness, there were small red tactical lights that you use, um, headlamps and that sort of thing. So that way it's harder to see, it's harder for ISIS to see. So we'd walk out there And under red light, we'd see women, children, old people, um, wounded and moaning and twisted in horrible positions, in pain. And they had all come down from this specific street that we were told, the Iraqi soldiers told us, do not go down that street or you'll get shot.
2: The street was a five-lane city highway. Their safe house was tucked into a side alley right around the corner. So at first light, Ephraim and Dave walked out onto the road and began to realize the people they had treated all night were the few survivors among scores of dead. The highway was littered with concrete rubble, burned out cars, and people trying to drag their way to safety.
5: So we got up into one of the destroyed buildings that had a view cut off from the view of ISIS and the snipers, but we could look down over this highway and all four lanes of the highway were just littered with bodies. You imagine what a nightmare would be like, truly, but it was real, it was extremely real. Bodies all over, all over the road. And the road that we were looking at was a four-lane highway right next, right next to the Tigris River. Brutal, horrible, horrible, it's sickening. 20 right away, 30, 40, 70, I counted. A lot of people had been shot and played dead. Then we started to realize oh, there's some sort of massacre that happened here.
2: Describe um, what you remember of people, like what you saw. Have you saw. seen that footage? No.
3: Oh, I'll describe that I just want to show you something.
2: Yeah. What are we looking at? What are, what are, what are this?
3: These are people when they first started coming. I killed my kids. He's after taking the first patient's
0: out. I <laughs> went, baby,
6: baby, 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 it's one of the biggest massacres that I've seen since ISIS took control
2: This is an Iraqi army private who was on the scene also He goes by the name Zuhair And his unit worked alongside Ephraim and Dave
6: They're kids, innocent people, old people, people on wheelchairs They burned them, their hair and bodies, they tortured them It was horrible.
5: So we're sitting there looking at this, and we eventually realize that there's actually some people still alive. We start seeing kids walking around in these bodies, kids still alive. Holy cow, there's a girl alive. Maybe another kid? A man? maybe another kid, maybe three, two, three kids. Uh, I remember one girl specifically, she got up and she would walk from body to body to body and she wouldn't touch them, she wouldn't look for anything, she would just stare at the body and then she, for, for a few seconds and then she'd move over to the next body and stare at it for a few seconds.
1: Um, I was getting texts from Dave saying, desperate situation, tons of people fleeing, um, we can't get to them, there's lots of people, we can't get to them, please pray.
5: And we're sitting there, you know, how do do you deal with this? How do you, you know, you can't just run out there and grab them. You'll die. I saw a little girl hiding under her dead mom's hijab, the black scarf thing over their face. There were also two men still alive who were relatively responsive and would like wave at us. And they were giving us the motion, come, come here, come help us. And we knew we had to do something.
2: But doing something, anything at all, was really almost impossible. The wounded people were completely out in the open on this highway. There were swarms of ISIS fighters everywhere, hiding behind windows on rooftops, behind cars. They'd taken over a nearby Pepsi factory. They'd taken over a hospital at the end of the road.
3: There's 70 dead people here for a reason. There's a blown up Iraqi armored vehicle right behind me for a reason. There's a reason the Iraqis haven't crossed this road.
6: Well, one time we tried, we really did, to go through that road using our cars. But we kept on getting hit by ISIS members.
2: So Dave and his team decided they wanted to build some kind of convoy to push down the road. An armored bulldozer, followed by a few tanks, and maybe finally a Humvee.
3: I ran back to the Iraqi tank commander, and I said, I I want an armored um, bulldozer to clear the way, a tank behind it, and we'll drive our armored We have the armored Humvee. Our armored Humvees and two or three of your armored Humvees will make a rescue convoy punch right in.
2: You're thinking maybe six vehicles total, oh, yeah. five
3: or six. Oh yeah, that's the only way you can get there quickly and live through. It. And the Iraqis said, "Hey man, we got a war going
5: on." The the only people that were particularly hesitant were were the Iraqi army, and not because they were cowardly, but because they understand, like, I if you go out there, ISIS holds the holds the high ground, and they will crush you. It was a very real thing, and I, I too was terrified because I I knew, like, you're not coming out of this one unscathed. There, there's just no way. It was suicide to go out there.
2: And when the Iraqi army guys were saying that this is crazy, were they indignant or were they just being earnest?
5: They were terrified because they knew, they knew what they were talking about. And we knew that they knew what they were talking about as far as the brutality of ISIS and the fact that you're not going in and out of there unscathed. I said, look, we have a chance. We
3: can save these kids. And he goes, okay, I'll give you one tank. That's all, right now.
2: The Iraqi commander relented. And he said to Dave he'd sacrifice one battle-worn tank to this cowboy rescue mission. Nothing and nobody else.
3: No armor, bulldozer to clear the way. No Humvee can go then. Just... You can run behind it or not. Will you accept that? I said, yeah. So that means we have to run behind the tank, which means you're exposed from three sides. Well, actually from four, because they can't shoot you from the front, but if the mobility, they shoot over the tank and down on you. I call uh, my friends, the Americans.
2: Dave is former Special Forces himself, and he was in regular communication with the American Army. He called in reports from the front lines, and on this day, he called in a favor.
3: And I said, hey, man, we need smoke. If, if you can get smoke
5: and obscure them, we have a chance.
2: The Americans agreed and began to drop smoke.
5: We're going to go behind one single tank, one Iraqi Abrams tank, and we were going to drive straight up the road, grab these kids, and grab everybody we could, and run back with them.
0: You're listening to Snap Judgment, and in just a moment, hear what happens to Dave, Ephraim, and the whole team as they attempt to rescue civilian survivors trapped in the middle of an ISIS massacre. On Snap Judgment, the Badlands episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Badlands episode. When last we left, a team of armed humanitarians are preparing to run into the line of fire in Mosul to save the lives of civilians trapped in a massacre. Snap Judgment.
5: We're going to go behind one single tank, one Iraqi Abrams tank, and we were going to drive straight up the road, grab these kids, and grab everybody we could, and run back with them.
3: I thought, well, if my daughter out there, I don't want someone to help. So I turned to the team. I said, I'm not going to make anybody
5: go. Uh, Dave Eubanks' exact words were, whoever wants to go, let's go. And he ran out behind the tank. I turned to me and said, whoever will go, come with me. I wanted to vomit. My hands were shaking. It, was, it wasn't fear. It was terror. It was horror. These bullets are coming in. It is a very real, very real decision. Truly, I was... I made the decision, and I know everyone, I know every other guy on the team made the same decision. We're ready to die. Right after I decided that, the tank took off full speed down the street, down this highway toward ISIS. I followed him, Sky Barkley followed him, a Syrian interpreter who had replaced our uh, friend Shaheen, who had been killed.
2: Five men started running behind the single tank Dave and Ephraim, a former Marine named Sky Barkley the Syrian ice cream seller, Mahmoud, and an ethnic Burmese guerrilla fighter, a guy who goes by the name of Monkey.
5: We got behind the tank and immediately ISIS opened up on us. And they were heavily armed. We're like a th- few guys behind the tank. And we're trying not to trip on the bodies as we as we sprint down the road. And the, the tank stops right by where the kids are at. They're maybe 15 or 20 feet away from the edge of the tank. By now, I only see one little kid alive and two men alive.
3: I looked at the kid and I prayed and I thought, I'm probably going to die doing this.
4: I've seen my dad do a lot of different things and I've heard about him doing a lot of different things. It would have been really sad that day if I lost my dad, but
2: I would have understood. The smoke that the Americans had dropped was providing a little bit of cover. Dave saw the young girl, and it was by no means an ideal setup, but it was his best shot.
3: Had to yank her away from her mother. She would not let go of her mother. Dead mother. It was horrible. Put her in my arm, ran back, and then I said, we got to get those two guys.
2: There were two old men among the bodies also. Sky ran out and grabbed one, and Ephraim ran out and grabbed the other, and then they all ran back behind the cover of the tank. And this whole thing, the whole rescue, is being videotaped by the Burmese fighter named Monkey. Ephraim hoisted the old man he was carrying onto a tabletop he made into a stretcher. And they all started running back towards safety, stumbling over chunks of blown up pavement and over dead bodies. And they're running with the tank acting like a shield behind them, protecting them from all the ISIS fire. It was chaotic, and the old man Ephraim was dragging Slid off the tabletop and into the line of fire.
6: I
5: turned around and the the man looks up. He's he's huddled on his he's huddled on his back and he looks up at me. He looks at me. Basically, are you going to save me? And there was There was no way to save him. Bullets were coming in. It was just it was just impossible. Running out there and grabbing the guy at this point not an option. There's too many bullets. you're going to get shot and as I'm sort of processing what I'm seeing, my legs immediately get taken out from underneath me. A bullet comes in from out of nowhere and hits me in my right leg, and I hit the dirt.
2: Ephraim was shot, but he was still able to limp, run. And the whole crew crossed the road and around the corner, where Dave yelled for his 16-year-old daughter, Saheli. And dad says, get in the Humvee, Saheli. So I get in the Humvee,
4: and the little girl was in my dad's arms. We just fed her cookies, biscuits, cookies, biscuits. She didn't say a word, but she kept drinking and drinking.
3: Saheli and I fed her six bottles of water in the Humvee.
4: It was nice to know that I was able to do something. Dad's like, give me more water. So we gave more water. And she, I've never seen a little girl down water so fast in my life. And so we take her. We find one of the houses that have water. We find her some clothes. She's still so dazed and traumatized.
3: I called my wife and I said, Honey, Efren's been shot he's fine, but I get this girl.
1: There was a, a t- a phone call, a phone call and a text that said, Please come to the CCP right away. There's a little girl. Okay, pack up everything. Everybody get in the car. Daddy wants us there right away. And there was a little girl sitting there, kind of very tired. Or I think Dave had told me this girl just lost all her family. So I never spoke to her. I just picked her up and put her in my lap because I'm not a medical person at all. I don't know what to do in a you know, triage situation like that. But here was a little girl sitting there by herself. I thought, I know what to do with this person. I just picked her up and put her in my lap. I held her and held her, and she sat there and just looked big eyes, just looked. You know, I held her pretty tight because that's what little kids need. And we
4: just laid her in mom's arms, and she just, like, just... Not, not class, but like just relaxed and just leaned her head against mom's chest and just went to sleep like that.
5: I'm sitting there and the emotion of everything is sort of, is hitting me at this point. And this little girl that we just saved, this girl that every single one of us was ready to die for. And she's covered in blood. She's in complete shock. Her hair is matted. And I, I sat there and I put my hat over my face and I just started weeping the emotion of it all, and I was so happy to see her alive.
2: Ephraim was evacuated to a hospital for emergency surgery on his leg. Dave found the Iraqi private Zuhair at the casualty collection point.
3: When I got back to a safe side, Zuhair was there. He just came and said, thank you for saving those people.
6: I believe what the American team did was honorable, and David and his team's support and actions was an act of heroism and I consider them champions.
2: After the rescue, Karen took the little girl back to the house where they were
1: staying. And I was really thankful to have that house that was a comfortable place. Just took her to the bedroom where um, we had cleaned off a big bed and laid her in there. I tried to feed her a little bit and give her things. I put her in front of some, I had some uh, movies, some kids' movies in Arabic. Mom had a,
4: an Arabic version of the Christmas story on our computer. So we showed her that, She would, and she'd follow my mom around everywhere, hold on to her, my mom's skirt, and like walk around with her.
3: I went back. You know, it's hot, so I'm sweating. I got blood all over me. I've been carrying, you know, wounded people.
1: And we didn't have water at our house. We were having to fill up the tanks, fill up some buckets at our house.
3: And so I get my canteen cup, poured over, shampoo.
2: He poured water over his head in the cool night air of the courtyard. And then he went to the closet in the bedroom, opened it up, and found a clean, white nightgown. Then he walked over to the big bed.
3: And so this seemed to us peaceful, even though you could hear the shooting in the distance. Boom, boom, boom. I'm back with my family. So that night when I went to sleep, my wife was on one side of the bed, and this little girl we rescued, she's cuddled up next to my wife, right next to my wife. My wife is kind of cuddling her. And that's where she wanted to be. And that's where she slept.
1: I do, you know, remember him coming in and saying night, and thank God for today.
3: And I remember kissing my wife and um, patting the girl's head and saying, God, thanks.
2: When Dave and Karen and their kids first got to Kurdistan, they found an old, old 16th century monastery high up on a hill. They walked up, up, up to the monastery, and there there was a woman singing a song. She sang, God has decided my fate, now God must set me free, and so Haley spent the next couple months teaching herself that song whoa
0: Big thanks to Ephraim Matos, Zuhair, and the whole Eubank family for sharing their story at the Snap. You can find out more information on the free Burma Rangers on our website, snapjudgment.org. And when I heard this story, I had a lot of questions. So we actually have in our studio producer Anna Sussman. What's up, Anna? Hi. Now, Anna, you've got to let us know, what happened to the little girl they rescued?
2: They found two aunties that survived the massacre. and She's living with them, and she's doing all the regular kid stuff.
0: Right on. Anna, what about Ephraim? Did he recover from his gunshot wound?
2: Yeah, they evacuated into a hospital nearby, and he got emergency surgery, and his leg was is healing up, and it's fine. Yeah. So he's doing all right? Yeah. I mean, f- physically he was doing okay. You know, when he was in that hospital, his mind kind of, you know, he was replaying what happened over and over and over again. And I think it got a little tough for him, especially as he was recovering at a safe house in Erbil. Here's what he had to say about it.
5: I had, you know, of course been, as every person does after they've been through some crazy traumatic event, they're sort of replaying the events in their mind. And I was doing the same thing. I was trying to remember, where was I standing? How did we let that guy die? During the mission, it became very evident, very quick, that Dave was in charge of the little girl. Sky was in charge of of the one man who survived. And ultimately, it was up to me to save the third man. That became very evident very quick. And I undoubtedly failed at that. And a couple days later, some of the Freeborn Rangers came out of the field, and they, they had some of the footage. So I'm sitting... In the dining room area at the safe house in Erbil, and they they pull up a laptop, and they're sitting there, and they show me the video footage of the mission. It was an extremely strange thing. Most soldiers never get the chance to see themselves from someone else's point of view in combat. So he's obsessing watching this footage.
2: Kind of. He has this Navy SEAL training, you know? That
0: can't be good for someone.
2: Yeah, because in the SEALs, they like, they replay every movement over and over again until they get it right. That's their thing. So this interesting thing happened next for him was that after he was watching the video over and over again, that video started to go viral.
5: One aid worker who makes it his life
2: mission to save other people rescues a girl in an Iraqi war zone.
0: It's a sprint between life and death that's gone viral. Dave Eubank of the Free Burma Rangers told CBN News why he risked his own life to save the six-year-old Iraqi girl.
5: Part part of me, I'm I'm human, a part of my pride absolutely was like, oh, that's cool. You know, people saw me out there doing something heroic. The other part of me is I, I have to relive this moment again and again and again People, people see this video, and there's always the question: Well, where's the where's the third guy? Where's the where's the third patient? What happened to him? We had a saying in the SEAL teams: The enemy always gets a vote. Whatever you, whatever your plan is, whatever you want to do, the enemy has a say. I just hope he doesn't feel bad about what happened. I mean, I, I'm not running into war
0: zones over here, you know.
2: Yes, yeah, he gets it, and that's. Kind of what I love about this story is that it's about civilians, like people like you and me, who have regular jobs and are regular people who go and fight ISIS in war zones.
0: And these guys, they're not just handing out band-aids and medical supplies; they're they're fighting with the guns and the.
2: Yeah, they're a very complicated group of people, and I was I didn't want to tell a story that kind of drew any conclusion. We just wanted to tell a story about one day in the life of these people.
0: But. Can you talk about what happened the day after this story? It was crazy. We're going to get to this right after the break. Snap Judgment. Stay tuned. We're back, and I'm here with producer Anna Sussman, and we're speaking about the aftermath Of an ISIS attack in Iraq, where people are scattered, wounded, injured, dying, and Anna, what happened then?
2: Okay, Zuhair, the Iraqi private from the story, he got a call on his cell phone from a woman trapped inside a Pepsi factory where the massacre took place.
6: A girl called me and she told me that she's injured and I realized that I know her uncle. This
3: girl who was injured, shot in the leg, had made a phone call out saying, we're in here, there's at least four of us alive, please come and help us. We saw, you know, we we saw the rescue yesterday.
2: Oh, they saw it from the Pepsi factory? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know
3: that. And they they had hope that we could get them out. So the first rescue, I led the action. The second one was not led by me. It was led
6: by an Iraqi, and the world needs to know this, by an Iraqi private. I informed David right away that I'm willing to risk my life and go in. And if I get stuck, I can last for at least five hours. And this is Iraqi private
0: to hear. does it seem like watching the Free Burma Rangers, was it that that made him act recklessly? Or. Uh... I
2: can't figure out if watching them made him act recklessly or made him act wonderfully. I think it's, it's almost impossible to tell. I asked Dave about it. This is what he said. Do you ever. I wondered if you ever felt like uh, maybe he was over emboldened by what you guys did. Like maybe you had created this hero monster.
3: I, I thought maybe he was a little rash, but he wasn't crazy. And he's, you know, he told me, aren't you special forces? Special forces can do everything. Go. I was like, "You yeah, know, man, dude, ain't a movie. We don't have a tank. There's no secret anything. I'm not Superman. Really clear. You go with me, you could die. You just know that. I can't save you. He told me, I'll cut my arms off first, you know, before I don't do anything. He was pleading with everybody to help him. And Zier said, who will follow me? He put up his hand? Put up his hand, yeah. Who will follow me?
2: I mean, that's what you said.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Right? Mm -hmm. You said, who will follow me? Yeah. Did he learn that from you?
3: I don't
4: know. (laughs) Okay.
2: I don't know. (laughs) Okay. We actually called the woman who made that phone call to Zuhair. Here's what she says. She's saying, I had my brother's number with me, and a young girl came to me and asked me for help. Her mother had been stabbed and couldn't move. And I said, go and search the dead bodies for a mobile phone. So she went to her mom's body and got her mom's phone, but that battery was dead. So I said, go and search all the dead bodies and search the pockets um, to get a phone. And she found one that was working. And I called my brother, and they called Zuhair.
0: So what was that rescue like inside the Pepsi
2: factory? It was nuts. Uh, ISIS was inside the factory, so they had to sneak in like um, like cat burglars.
3: Quiet as we could, almost no whispering, just hand signals. Like they'd turn to you and, and put the finger in front of the mouth, like the shh, without saying the shh part. Just, and, and then careful, careful. They put their hands like this, you know, careful, careful, careful. So we're walking, treading lightly as we could on all this rubble not to make noise because ISIS is on the, right behind the next wall. Very difficult. First, it's really slippery. It's like walking on marbles, and it's all noisy. It's concrete and steel. We're single file, just wending our way through the rubble.
2: And where's ISIS at this point?
3: ISIS is to our right, the next wall over. They're they're in the factory, but they're not in the same hall we're in. They're in the next hall over. You could hear ISIS voices. How many do you think? Total, there's reported to be 200 ISIS there. And I actually, at that moment, I, tur- I turned, and I've never admitted this. I've been leading Freedman Ranger for 24 years. During that time, I never admit I'm afraid, ever. I just felt for my soul. I just turned and said, you know what, man? I'm afraid. And we come to this big hall the size of, of a, maybe a basketball court. That was full of Pepsi cans, about two to three feet high. Empty cans. It actually wasn't Pepsi. It was like a local drink, local carbonated fizzy drink. Just thousands of cans. I was like you got to be kidding me. How are we going to get through that? So, Lord, help us. And we just ran one by one. Clack, 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 And then one person would run. The next one, the next one, the next one. We got all the way through and realized they didn't shoot us. And I ran through another door. And in that door was um, a lady laying there.
2: And, of course, inside the Pepsi factory, there's not just this one woman, Kofron, who called. They keep finding more and more survivors and picking them up as they weave through the factory. Here's Kofran, the woman who called. She's saying there was a young man who was paralyzed. There was another woman.
0: They carried all of these people out of there alive?
2: Uh, They were about to, yeah. They were kind of weaving their way out of the factory, carrying all these massacre survivors. And then one more thing happened.
0: One more
3: thing?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Here's Dave talking about it.
3: I think we're done. we got four people now. But we look out in the street and we see movement behind this car. There's four dead bodies and there's a woman amongst them. And she opens her mouth and and moves her hand just a little bit. Help me. Oh, no. She's alive. How can we save her? Because she's out in the street behind this car. ISIS can't shoot her behind this car, but if we ran out there, they'd see us and shoot us. You could hear some ISIS voices from that corner. So they just would come right in behind us, and, and they'd know where we were, and they'd kill everybody. I grabbed Zuhair's hand and he looked up and without making a noise, he pointed up at the wall behind me and there was a white, fat electrical wiring. and
2: Kind of stapled into the wall?
3: Yeah. Get that. So I started pulling it down and cut a section with my knife and tied it together, coiled it up, threw the wire out to the lady. It landed right on her chest. The woman then tied... Um, the wire to her hand and I remember praying because she's three days now shot, no water, laying with all these bloated bodies. She tied this wire to her hands I thought you ought to document this and it's not going to hurt anything You filmed on what? I filmed a little iPhone and I can show that to you Here it is These are all dead bodies out there Ice is all around us. That's why we're not making noise.
2: I can't believe what I'm seeing. Oh, jeez, so we have to tell this story. Yeah. So in this video, you see this woman being. She's clutching this length of electrical cable that they've thrown to her, and they're pulling her hand over hand across this like rubble field. It's it's unbelievable. It's something you really have to you really have to see to believe. It's it's amazing.
0: We're going to have the video on our website, snapjudgment.org. Anna, were these people safe?
2: Yes. Every single person that they rescued that second day also made it. Good Lord. Do you have any more questions about this story? Like about how they use violence or about how they bring their family in or about how weird the whole thing is? Or not weird? I don't know.
0: <clears throat> <laughs> the choice to start with the housewife thing was a very interesting choice to me. The, tr- the questions I have are about the Eubanks family, like what are they doing? Um, I could just hang out with the Eubanks forever.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And, and and it's very strange because as an outsider and as a reporter, my questions are all like, how can you do this? And this is crazy. And and who would do this? But when you're with them, they make it feel very normal. Um it's, it's, you know, they have dinner together and sometimes they have dinner with Iraqi soldiers and sometimes they have dinner with Burmese refugee folks and uh, different kind of fighters from all around the world and they sit down together and they do their homework and they eat food and they they claim, and, and, and it feels very normal to them.
0: You're saying that if someone's doing homework, someone's like washing dishes, someone else is talking to an Iraqi fighter and this is their normal.
2: Yeah, and there's bombs going on in the background and they have weapons in the house and they have... Uh, you know, backpacks full of medical gauze and everything. That's all part of their world.
0: Do you think... I mean, this is this is mind reading, but do you think they're sincere?
2: This is a... It's tough for me to say because they have a faith in God that I, that I don't. I don't know if we want to go here, but they have a faith in God that I don't. And I think that faith is sincere. Um, it's just not the world. It's not how I live my life.
0: But they seem very free with people who don't have a faith in God, at least the same God.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's because, you know, they have this theory that, I mean, if you ask Dave, what is God? He'll name all the different names for God, right? Like Allah, Yahweh, Yesu, all the things. He's, he, he, he believes that. He's
0: ecumenical that way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. His God is Jesus, but he thinks it has many different names.
0: Big thanks to Anna for making that story happen. And the piece was scored by Renzo Gorio. Oh, yes, snappers, if you missed even a moment of this story not to fear, hear it, share it, comment, fly your snap flag high and get the Snap Judgment Storytelling Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, get this one. There is more amazing storytelling where that came from. Find Snap Judgment on Facebook. Find it on Twitter. To get the story behind the stories, I personally promise not to sell your information to any of the Russian agents I see hanging around SNAP headquarters. I'm talking to you, Dimitri. I don't care how much money you have. And yes, the rumors are true. Spook Season 2 returns this summer with all new episodes of Supernatural Encounters of the Close Kind. And if you have an incredible story you think would work on Spook. Let us know. Spook at snapjudgment.org. Snap Judgment Live is going to Kalamazoo, Michigan. That's a real place. Find out if it's sold out. I think Mark is thinking it's sold out. Find out at snapjudgment.org. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the team that likes to avoid danger at all costs. Give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. The giant. Pat Mercedes Miller in the middle. Bruiser, Anna Sussman. Shayna, long ball Sheely. They're on one team. Versus, Liz, the Crusher, Mac. Adiza, Skyhook, Egan. Renzo, Dr. Dynamite, Gorio. Joe, Twinkle Toes, Rosenberg. They're on the other. Our officials include, The Mask, Leon Morimoto. Tail, Straight Legs Ducat. Eliza, Eight Ball Smith. Buzzsaw, Nancy Lopez. And Jasmine. Don't want no trouble Won't be no trouble Aguilera Is a halftime entertainment And I'm sure you've heard This is not the news No way it's this news In fact you could rescue A damsel in distress Only to realize Last minute that Not only did they not Wish to be rescued But Big Al Is nobody's damsel And he would still Still Not be as far away from the news As this is But this is The N.Y.